0: failing is not a sin it's how you learn and i think when you make a mistake and you get hurt if you don't learn from it then there's no point in getting hurt and i used to tell the players after maybe 10 years of the business you should hire me because i have made more mistakes than anyone in the business but i've learned from them
1: welcome to superhero leadership with host peter cuneo our podcast explores outstanding leadership through the lens of some of the most successful superhero leaders from business, sports, politics, the military, and public service. This podcast is for anyone who aspires to great leadership. Our host, renowned business leader Peter Cunio, has experienced superhero leadership throughout his life and career. From serving as a naval officer in the Vietnam War to being the CEO of Marvel Entertainment Peter has completed seven business turnarounds in consumer products, media, and entertainment, and served on the boards of many public and private enterprises, often as chairman. Drawing from his list of what he considers to be 32 essential qualities for great leaders, each week, Peter will offer actionable takeaways you can implement into your life and career today. Now, here's Peter to introduce this week's guest.
2: It is my pleasure to introduce you to my friend, David Falk. As many of you know, David is a legendary agent having represented some of the greatest athletes of our time, including Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing and Shaquille O'Neal. His impact on the sports industry has been monumental and his leadership qualities have been instrumental in shaping the landscape of professional sports today. At one point in time, David represented over 100 NBA players in one six-day period David negotiated $400 million worth of contracts for NBA free agents. David is perhaps best remembered for creating the concept of Air Jordan sneakers. I'm thrilled to have David with us today, and I'm excited to hear what he has to share about his experiences and leadership lessons. David, it's great to have you with us today. I really appreciate you coming by. As you know, we have these 32 essentials, which I think are part and parcel of what we're trying to get across to people with regard to leadership. I'm often asked on these 32, what's the hardest one to accomplish of all the 32? And I think it's the one that talks about the fact that a great leader has to have courage, courage to be disliked because great leaders who are disruptive in particular make radical change and radical change will scare people. Let me start with a story quickly and then I'm going to throw it to you. One of the turnarounds I did, I came into the office and I'm always replacing the CEO or the president, whatever the title is. And they're usually long gone. But in this one particular case, the former, if you will, CEO was still in the office just for a couple of days of overlap. And he reminded me of Mr. Rogers in many ways. And he'd been with the company a very long time, 30 years, maybe more. And he'd been the CEO for 15 years or something. We shook hands and he said to me, Peter, I'm glad you're here. And of course, I was thinking to myself, there's no way you're happy I'm here. But I said to him, really, why is that? And he said, I know you'll make the changes that I couldn't. And I said, really, what's that? And he said, I couldn't fire my friends. And I thought in terms of introspection, the guy was right on. But that's what we're talking about here, about making, he couldn't make those hard changes and be disliked or basically, I have to say, harm people that had been very loyal to him for many years. And David, in your background, listen, you are famous and infamous both, right? For a lot of things regarding the sports world. And I think it's no overstatement to say that Comes from your efforts, but you obviously made a lot of enemies. I have to say, I'm sure the owners didn't like you very much. I even know that the sometimes the unions for the athletes didn't like you either because you were making changes they didn't like, even though they benefited the unions and the players. So I'll throw that to you. How did you feel emotionally when you knew it was inevitable that you're going to shake things up and that? It might cost you
0: some friends. Well, the early part of my career, Peter, I was extremely young. I started this business when I was 23 years old. And so let's say for the first 10 years, I'm representing the best and the brightest in the world. Representing players like James Worthy the number one pick in the draft. Phil Ford, the National Player of the Year, Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing. And while I was confident that I knew the business... I felt a tremendous responsibility to try to match from a business side what these players were doing on the court to be the best that I could be. And so I consider myself a compulsive achiever. And I think that desire to achieve in certain ways sublimated my desire to be liked. I was so compulsive about trying to show them that they made a good decision hiring me and that I would produce quality work for them. But I had an epiphany. Directly on number 18, John Thompson, who was a very dear friend, a mentor to me, he called me in his office when I was about 40 one day, and he said, son, you have a very serious problem. And right away, I was really nervous. And I said, what is that, sir? And he said, let me ask you a question. Do you want people to like you? I said, of course, that's a very basic human instinct. And he said, then you should quit the business you're in, because when you walk in the door, and you ask a rich white owner to pay a player like Allen Iverson, who's like the hip-hop impresario, $100 million, that owner's going to hate your guts. And if that impedes you from doing your job, then you're sacrificing your desire to be popular for the quality of your work. Now, I never really looked at it. That is a very simple deduction. And I didn't want people to dislike me. I wanted them to respect me. And I think when you act in a professional manner, people may not like your approach. They may not like what you're asking for. They may think you're asking for too much or you're asking for changes that are too radical, as you're suggesting. But I think, you know, the famous quote to thine own self be true, you have to do what you really believe in. And for me, I don't think I could have been successful in closing these deals if I didn't truly believe in what I was asking for. And I think a big reason for that is that Having done it, let's say for 10 years, by the time I was 33, when I met Michael Jordan, I developed a philosophy that I didn't want to be a plumber. I didn't want to be do something very mechanically the same way over and over based on how things were done in the past. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to challenge myself to be better with every deal. And I think the last element, if I could add it to, before I was 40, I think my emotional immaturity made me feel like I had to like, win every brush fire. And I came to a point in the road at age 40 when I realized your job is to win the war. You have to give up a few battles along the way so you accomplish the ultimate goal. And I tried not to burn bridges unnecessarily, but if I had to burn them, if I had to really make someone upset or angry, or I was willing to do that. I wasn't looking to do it. I wasn't trying to be controversial, but I definitely felt and internal pressure to do a great job for my clients. You know, I talk a lot about
2: leaders growing up and how you learn leadership, start to learn leadership even at a young age. And in my case, I started to learn a lot about leadership from my family, from my grandparents. We didn't talk about leadership, the word, not at all, but they were all people who got out there and did things. Three of my four grandparents were immigrants, but they were willing to take risks. My father was a Navy officer in World War II, and in the Korean War, he was a lieutenant in New York City Fire Department. My mother was an EMT for 30 years. I grew up with an image of, you get out there, you get out there. They would not have done well sitting at
0: desks. Was your home life important? Could you talk a little bit about when you were growing up? I grew up in a really oil and water family. My mother was extremely highly educated. She had two master's degrees. She graduated college when most women didn't go to college. She spoke eight languages. She was an interpreter during World War II for Nelson Rockefeller in the Bureau of Latin American Affairs. And her parents, all my grandparents were immigrants. And her father was a scholar in Poland. And he came to America. They don't pay you to be scholars over here. (laughs) and he imbued his five children with a very strong bent towards education and so from as young as i could remember my mother would constantly repeat a mantra always shoot for the stars and never settle for second best and that sort of became my life credo i didn't look at myself as a star i did well in school but i wasn't the valedictorian i wasn't the salutatorian wasn't the president of my class i got cut from the Varsity basketball team, but I tried out. But I was very focused on achieving goals in a very linear way. So in high school, I wanted to do well because I knew I wanted to go to college. In college, I wanted to do well because I knew wanted to go to law school. I had an ambition to get into the sports business. I had to start working for free because nobody would hire me, and so I took it like one step at a time. And so, yes, my mother was the strongest influence in my life. She was my life mentor. Think about her all the time. And when I endowed a college in Syracuse, people always ask me, like, why did you do that? You know, as opposed to funding cancer research or solving the deforestation of the Amazon, it was to honor my mom because she was undoubtedly the most important influence of my life. Now, Ironically, my dad was the opposite. He never finished high school. He was a butcher. And I worked in a shop from the time I was nine years old. And I hated it. I had all the worst jobs, had a scrape the blocks and put sawdust on the floor and clean the platters with blood. And all throughout high school and into college, I was a bus boy. I was delivery boy. I delivered soda to the supermarkets in Long Island. And I really enjoyed working, but I knew I never wanted to make a living with my hands. And so sort of the combination of my father who didn't have it, my mother who did have it, really drove me in a very heavy achievement bet. And what I find, Peter, is that as a leader, you've got to find a way to set a tone because not every person that you're managing or leading can step up to that kind of a pace. And I think a great coach, if I can use that expression, knows that sometimes you have to kick a player in the ass to get them going. And sometimes you got to put your arm around him. and you can't treat them all the same. You can't be monolithic. You can't, be, you can't always throw the fastball because after a while, people get used to the fastball. And so I had to learn in my own company that the pace that I set for myself and the expectations that I had of myself, not everybody felt that kind of a passion. And I didn't want to dissuade them from working hard and contributing what they could contribute. And it's very difficult to do that when you're compulsive. And I admit, I'm compulsive. And my mom had the gene, my grandfather had it, I have it, my daughter has it, my older daughter, Dana. And I think it's a good thing to have in many ways, but it challenges you as a leader to learn to take your foot off the gas sometimes and let people catch up. You had at one
2: point, I think over a hundred NBA players that you represented and you couldn't be intimate with a hundred players and really know them. So you had to be good at figuring people out pretty quickly, not only the, your people you're representing, but of course the owners or other people you had to deal with in that milieu. And you were obviously very good at it. Was there anything particularly special in that regard that you can think about
0: that aided you, so to speak? I think in dealing with the players, Peter, you know, we're in a business where the players you're signing are extremely young and they're very inexperienced in business. And so the agents generally tell these players whatever they think they want to hear it in order to sign them as clients. And I think that's a terrible way to start a relationship because if you're not being really candid, then there's going to come a time when you're going to lose your credibility of something silly and you're going to get to something really critically important, then they're not going to trust you. So I developed a philosophy that I'd rather lose the player in, in the recruiting process, but I'm never going to lie to him. I mean, we met a, Heisman Trophy winning player from Michigan named Desmond Howard that was recommended to us by a lawyer who was advising his family. And the meeting went fantastically well till the very last minute of the meeting. And the player said to me, where do you think I'm going to go in the draft? Now, I knew he wanted me to tell him he going to go number one because he won the Heisman Trophy, but he was a wide receiver and he was a small wide receiver. There's only been three wide receivers in the history of the NFL have gone one. So I told him, you're going to go between four and six and he didn't hire us. And if I do again, I do the exact same thing. And he went number five. And so I think it's really important in leading people, be honest. And I think what happens is that the people that allow you to be honest and accept disappointment or accept answers from you or recommendations that you're going to make that they don't like, those people are going to stay with you a long time. And the people you constantly need to Fain yourself into a pretzel to please them, you really can't lead them. And so it's like a marriage. Not every girl you date is a great candidate to be your wife. And I looked at my clients as a business marriage. And I'm very proud to say that, you know, I have relationships that last almost 50 years with people like John Lucas, who's my first client, Phil Ford, you know, Michael and Patrick over the years, Coach K, John Thompson. And I think you're investing in a relationship. And there are times. Interestingly enough, in my business, where you have very young players who may be as young as 18 coming out of high school, and you have clients like Coach K or John Thompson that are older than me, and you have to learn how to manage them in different ways. You're not going to treat John Thompson at age 70 the way you treat an 18-year-old person, but you can't be intimidated by your clients, and you can't be afraid to tell them things that they're not going to like that you hear if you wanna be effective as an advisor, as a leader. One of our 32 Essentials talks
2: about the fact that you should always be honest with people and tell them what you really think. It also says, admit your mistakes. And I've learned a lot about admitting my mistakes over the years, primarily actually from mentors or other people that I respected and saw that even though they were leaders and they might think, oh, I'll lose face with the organization if I admit I made a mistake, all the best ones would just simply say, you know what, I made a mistake. OK, we're going to fix
0: it right now. It's very interesting you say that because I wrote a book in 2009 properly called The Ball Truth Like My Head. And when the book was finished, the publisher asked me to summarize each chapter with four or five what they called false facts. And that was the most fun part of the book. And the one that I really stands out in my mind, I wrote that the last player in Major League Baseball history at about 400 was Ted Williams, like 70 years ago. It's considered one of the most iconic records in all the sports. And yet when you analyze it, what it means is that 60% of the time that Ted Williams came to the plate, he failed to get a hit. And so you have to learn to define success in the Venture capital business in Silicon Valley at the top firms, Andreessen Horowitz, there's a bunch of them. They probably hit 75% of the time they miss and they hit maybe two or three out of 10. And they're considered the world leaders in that space. And so failing is not a sin. It's how you learn. And I think when you make a mistake and you get hurt, if you don't learn from it, then there's no point in getting hurt. And I used to tell the players after maybe 10 years of the business, you should hire me because I've made more mistakes than anyone in the business, but I've learned from them. And you can't learn without trying to do something outside the norm. You know, that's why I said I never wanted to be a plumber. And I made mistakes. Some of them were extremely painful. I'll give you a great example. I represented my first quarterback, a local player from Maryland, who's the godfather of my daughter, Boomer size, and really a great man raised $125 million for cystic fibrosis. His roommate, Frank Reich, who's now the coach of the Carolina Panthers, was our second quarterback client. And I just made up my mind, almost arbitrarily, I want to get him a million dollars for a three-year contract. The GM of the Buffalo Bills, is a wonderful band named Bill Pauline, came to my office, which is like a mark of respect, and he offered me 900 right off the bat. Now, football teams, if they want to be at 900 they usually start at like a $200. And I counted it a million and we went back and forth. I didn't move. He came up to 950, took me to lunch and I should have accepted it. It was really, it was a really sophisticated move on his part, but I was stubborn and young. And so weeks went by and he was exasperated and he finally gave me the million. And in the seven weeks it took to get an extra $17,000 a year, when you take away fees and taxes, he probably didn't make an extra 5000 They brought in Jim Kelly from the U.S. Football League, and my guy never really got a chance to compete for the starting job. And I realized that was probably the dumbest thing I'd ever done in my career because I allowed my ego to interfere with my judgment. And 10 years later, five years later, I never would have made that mistake. You know, I would have recognized that Polian was a pro. He showed me the respect of coming to my office. He didn't play high ball, low ball. And as you say, you have to learn people. And only way you learn is by making a mistake. Now, Frank got the money, but he lost the chance to really compete for the job. Now, most people say it wouldn't have mattered. He would never beat Jim Kelly out, but I stole the opportunity for him to compete. And I really felt bad about it. And so, yes, I think making mistakes is part and parcel of, you know, no one's perfect. We're not robots, we're not programmed. You're gonna read people the wrong way but when I deal with people, I develop my own philosophy that if I wanted to make a million dollars for a player, I wasn't going to ask for five million. I was going to ask for a million, and I was going to try to explain to the person I was dealing with what economic factors I felt were responsible for that player being worth the money. Passes to number 23. He shoots. Yes! Oh!
2: Our conversation would not be complete if we didn't talk a little bit about Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest basketball player ever. And I have a little bit of an emotional connection to Michael because my father played basketball for the University of North Carolina. And in 1940, he was all city basketball in New York City for three years. And he was one of the first New York City types to go south. And in 1940, They won what they call the unofficial national championship. The NCAA tournament existed, but it was no big deal. And he was the sixth man. And so we have always been rooters for North Carolina, even though none of us in the family have gone to UNC. And of course, my first image of Michael was the famous jump shot. And they did win the championship. And he was just so cool and so smooth. But we've talked today about. Being disruptive, sometimes people are not going to like you when you have to do, changing culture, all these things. I'd like to read to you a quote from Michael and get your reaction. I suspect you've already heard this quote before, but I think those of you listening in right now will find this very interesting. So this is a quote from Michael Jordan. A lot of people don't like David, but he's the best at what he does. What he does is get underneath your skin, whoever he's negotiating with, because he figures out what your objectives are, your angles. He understands the market. He understands the players. He's a brash, arrogant, egotistical, aggressive negotiator, which is good because when you have someone represent you, you want him to be that. Marketing wise, he's great. He's the one who came up with the concept of Air Jordans. So you've long relationship obviously now what 50 years almost maybe with Michael probably very f- few other people know him as well as you do. He was pretty brash himself in many circumstances
0: but he delivered also. Just any thoughts you'd like to share with us on Michael? Sure. I say first of all he is the goat. I think he's the undisputed greatest player of all time. And it's an honor for me to have worked for him for his entire career. I learned a great deal from working with Michael, watching him compete, adapt as he got older. And the fact that he's been so successful in business after basketball is something I'm really proud of because I always felt my number one responsibility to these players as their advisor was to teach them in a very compacted period of time about business of sports so that when they stopped playing, they could lead meaningful careers after the fact. And Michael's been incredibly successful in a variety of, of different businesses. And I think that when Michael came back from baseball, you know, he retired at 29 after winning three championships, spent about a year and a half in baseball in, in the face of a baseball strike, he, you know, his the clock was running out. The difference between an athlete and the companies that you've turned around so successfully in your career is that their time frame is so finite; it's so limited. And so he knew when he came back at age almost thirty-one, what is he going to play till he's sixty? He's got plenty of time to right the ship. Clock is ticking; his skills are eroding, and he was demanding on his. Teammates because he knew he had only had a few shots left to win. And that's the only thing he came back for. Didn't come back for the money, didn't come back for the notoriety. He came back because he had unquenchable desire to win. And yes, he was tough on them, in part because some of them weren't tough enough on themselves. And I would say, Peter, one of the things I learned in my career as a boss is that people like Michael Jordan, you don't have to worry what you pay them. You're never going to pay them too much money because he's giving you maximum effort every day. I'll tell you an amazing story. We had a client from the University of Maryland about 1990 that the coach, I love Gary Williams, a good friend of mine. This guy wasn't a typical kind of player we'd represent. He's probably going to be a second round pick and we don't represent second round picks. And he asked me if I'd help the player. His name was Keith Booth, really, really good guy. And I said to Keith, you're going to the Bulls. They've just won two championships in a row and you're playing the same position as the best player in the league, Michael Jordan. If they call for practice at nine, you better get there at eight. And so first day, practice was at nine. He got there at eight. Michael's in a full sweat. Next day, he got there a quarter of eight, seven. No matter what time he got there, Jordan was already in a full sweat. And finally, one day, I can't give you the time. He got there before Michael. And the very next day, Michael had coffee and donuts waiting for him. Now, this is the best player in the league and a rookie who's going to play two years in the league. And he was making a statement to this rookie that no one's going to outwork me. I'm successful. I don't sit back on my laurels and my MVPs. You know, you're not going to outwork me. And that's the essence of who he is as a person. And I think that's a function of several things. One, he had amazing parents. James and Dolores Jordan were really special people. And they didn't coddle their son. They constantly very much like my mom, no matter what he did, they always thought he could do better. I'm not talking about in sports, talking about as a human being. And so I always say that if you could reverse engineer Michael Jordan in a lab, and you got a guy who's six foot six, muscular, but slim, explosive, fast, you need lightning to strike the bottle. So he's an incredibly intense competitive person. He's a very nice person. He's a very bright man. He's an incredibly loyal friend. And it's been the biggest honor in my career to have worked for people like Michael and Patrick and Coach Thompson, because that sort of defines my brand. They allowed me to spread my wings and make movies and shoe deals and things that I never dreamed about when I was in law school, which is why I didn't want to be a plumber. I wanted to try to do different things. And Having players of that caliber, you know, gave me a, a certain level of respect and power that enabled me to accomplish things that I couldn't have accomplished with lesser players because they just didn't have the clout. My dream when we did Air Jordan in 1984, and that contract was a function of a very special relationship I had developed with the head of marketing of Nike named Rob Strasser. I did all my Nike deals with Rob Strasser, and he came to trust me. It came to the point. We really didn't have negotiations. I would tell him, if you want to sign this player, this is what I think it's going to take. And he'd shake my hand and say, okay. And for Michael, I demanded that they come out with his own line of shoes. And when he asked me, what do you want to call the line? I said, are you kidding me? This is called a signature shoe, an autographed shoe. is going to have his name on it, just like Tiger Woods has his name on the stuff. And he said, Dave, we're not going to do that. No one's going to believe that a 21-year-old basketball player is sitting in his apartment designing shoes. So we'll consider a line, but you've got to come up with a name for the line. And it can't be Michael Jordan. I wanted to get up and strangle him. I was so frustrated. And I think because I got so frustrated, I had a rush of adrenaline in like 30 seconds. I said, okay, we're going to call it Air Jordan because you have this new technology for running shoes that incorporates these air soles that cushion your feet, and he plays in the air, so it's like a double entendre. And as I spoke, the graphic designer for Nike, it was a gentleman named Peter Moore, pulled out a sketch pad and sketched the first logo, which was a basketball with like military wings. And I used to tell him that my dream was that, as he got older and he got married, and had kids, that his son would turn fourteen, be in like say you know high school, and could walk into a Foot Locker and buy a pair of Jordans. And today the brand is. I think it's exceeded $6 million. It's really popular with women. And it's something I'm really proud of because it grew out of a very special relationship. Well, David, thanks so
2: much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Even at my advanced age, I still think I learned something every day from other people about leadership. And I certainly learned a couple of things from you this
1: morning. And I really appreciate it. One of the unique benefits of this podcast is your ability to make Peter a part of your leadership team. Peter's looking forward to sharing his experiences with fellow leaders and businesses of all sizes. If you have a particular business concern or challenge, Peter wants to help. So send your written or recorded question to peter at shlpodcast.com. That's peter at shl for superhero leadership podcast.com. Here is this week's question.
0: Hi, Peter. My name is Ron, and I have a company where I'm struggling. I, you know, my accountants in the finance department tell me that we are profitable, but so many times I am struggling on the 15th and the end of the month to make payroll. What am
2: I doing wrong? Well, Ron, thanks for your question. And it's, again, a great one. And your challenges that you're having making payroll. Despite the fact that you're profitable, is a perplexing situation that many entrepreneurs and other people have to face all the time. So, let me say that what really matters in terms of the financial health of the organization is cash flow. You can forget about profits, okay, because the rules of accounting are not perfect, they can't be. And it is actually possible for you to be in a situation where following the rules, your auditors are auditing your books. They are accurate. And they're telling you, well, you're gonna report some nice profits or here's the profits, but you know, you're still having the problem because you don't have any cash in the bank. So this is a very hard concept to understand for most people. In fact, my little story about this is when I started Harvard Business School, the first day, the first class was a a case study about a company like yours that basically was reporting nice profits, but was actually going bankrupt because bankruptcy refers to cash, okay? And, you know, I'd come from the US Navy. I knew nothing about finance, really. And so I was just as perplexed as you were right now. And of course, in the discussion in class, what came out is the fact that if you want to relate your business health to your personal body, think of the cash in your company as your blood. And if you have no blood, you know what happens to the body. If your blood is healthy, it's a big positive. So what you should be really focused on is cash. And there is, your auditors will give you, if you request it, what are called statements of cash. Okay. Even if you look at a reporting company that does their quarterly report, or their annual report, a public company, you will see three major statements. The first is the PL, the profit and loss. The second is the capital statement, the balance sheet, where are your assets, what are your liabilities? And the third is a statement of cash flows. So when I'm analyzing a company, I go right to the third one, which tells me far more than the other two do. The other two, yes, are interesting and can be useful, but where's the cash? How does the cash flow? If you want to understand a new company, for example, that you might be interested in joining or starting, look at the cash flows. Where does the cash come from? Where is it going to go? And so you have to run your business for cash. And sometimes that might conflict even with profitability. You may have to cut some expenses, which might reduce your revenues, which might reduce your profitability, but you won't be sweating making the payroll. Cash, 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 Ron. Good luck with your situation. So let's recap. I think there were three leadership essentials that came out in our conversations with David today. The first was, don't let success go to your head. I think the second was, take personal responsibility for your mistakes. And finally, have the courage to change the rules of the game for your organization. That's it for this episode of Superhero Leadership. I hope we've inspired you and equipped you with takeaways that can help you become a leadership superhero in your own right. Remember, leadership is not just about being in charge. It's about empowering others and creating a culture for success. So until next time, keep leading with purpose, with passion and with integrity together we can make a positive impact in the world and inspire others to become leadership superheroes too. I'm Peter Cuneo. Hey, by the way, if you haven't gotten your free copy of the 32 Essentials for Superhero Leadership, please go to our website at petercuneo.com.